to Bad Girl to Oracle, the Barbara Gordon Podcast, Episode 7. I'm your host, Stella, and I'm filling in for Kimberly Rockmore at the Watchtower News Desk. Episode 7 is brought to you by How I Would Have Done It by O.J. Simpson. How I Would Have Done It is a fictional account of... I'm sorry? Oh, okay. Um, I just got word that How I Would Have Done It is no longer slated for publication. This episode is now brought to you by Kevlar, able to protect you from any of life's little assassins, I mean accidents. And, for a limited time, if you put a down payment on a white Ford Bronco, you will receive a Kevlar vest for free. Episode 7 is also brought to you by Sex, Money, Good Grades, and Other Things You Won't Get in College by Brad Mendenhall. Brad is a listener of BTO and graciously sent me two copies of his book. I will review it later this hour. Finally, Bad Girl to Oracle is brought to you by MileHighComics.com, your new and collectible comic book store. Mile High Comics has an inventory of over 5 million comics from the gold, silver, bronze, and modern age, and over 100,000 trade paperbacks. An example of the prices you may encounter is Adventure Comics number 388, featuring Batgirl and Supergirl from 1969, in good condition for $26, or in very good condition for $52, plus 30% off vintage backstock. If you're not into the vintage stock, Mile High Comics also has a subscription service called the New Issue Comics Express, offering a discounted price for comics ready to hit the shelves. Again, examples of the prices you may encounter are July's Batgirl number 12 and Birds of Prey number 3, both for $2.69. So, if you're looking for vintage back issues or a great modern subscription service, be sure to check out milehighcomics.com. So to begin this hour, I guess, as I said, hopefully it'll be hour, I guess that's very optimistic of me. I've got uh, a bunch of questions and comments to get through, or just questions, rather. First from Steve J. Rogers. Unfortunately, um, I forgot his question last episode with all of the, the craziness that ensued due to the hard drive, so I'll, I apologize to you, Steve. Uh, so now I'm getting to it. Okay. He says, hey Stella, after posting those pics of the first Barbara Gordon action figures on the message board, i.e. the Batgirl to Oracle message board, I thought it would be a good thing to hear what is in your collection. So do you have much in the way of the figures, statues, trading cards, busts, and whatever else Batgirl has been in terms of merchandise or any other comic book characters? I don't have too much in the way of Batgirl. Um, I definitely have that Batgirl shirt, and of course I've got the comics. Um, I recently got a um, a double package of uh, action figures. It has Batman and Batgirl, and it's you can tell it's definitely the the Barbara Gordon Batgirl, and she has the the gray and the blue to match um, Batman's gray and blue. And apparently, it's really hard to find now. So I, I thank Chris, my friend, who who got this for me. I do have my eye on a particular bus to get, but I'm sort of waiting um, until I get a job. That'd be nice, uh, so that I can uh, pay for that. But I mean, there is a lot of merchandise that definitely I have my eye on for Babs, but I um, I wait to see for something that I, I really want because um, there's so much out there that really uh, <laughs> you could fill your entire house with stuff. 
Uh, I do want to get the DC Universe poster that has all the DC women on it, um, and they're in—they're all in white. I think there is one person dressed in black, and I think that's uh, Catwoman. She's in a fancy gown, and I did have that on hold at my LCS, but then someone snagged it, even though my name was on it. So I was pretty depressed, but I hope that I'll be able to get the women of the DC Universe. As for other comic book characters, um, I mean, Spider-Man sort of has always been my top. Um, superhero. I've liked him ever since I was very young, so I have a lot of stuff from him. I have a bunch of uh, action figures from the 1990s. Um, I have the the push and play uh, Spider-Man uh, that Brad has. You know, you push and he sings Itsy Bitsy Spider. I remember I have a uh, sort of a fake pager um, that has Spider-Man like it's got the thwip noise, and it's got, you know, your friendly neighborhood Spider-Man, different buttons you push. I have one of the, the older, from the 1990s, um, web cartridges. Like, it's an actual glove, and you put it on your hand, and then you slide this sort of foam uh, web-looking thing on, and, and you can push down the pressure plate, and uh, it shoots out. And I had a... Spider-Man costume, uh, which was very well used. Um, it, I still have it somewhere. So I have a lot of Spider-Man stuff, several posters. Um, no busts, I don't think. But so Spider-Man, um, sort of overwhelmingly, I have stuff from him. And Batgirl, I think, is she will slowly catch up. Uh, I definitely want to get a bust for her. Um, but we, we'll see when that happens. So I apologize again for not answering that question, but there you go, there's my answer. Next up, Lady Spider. She says, what are, in your opinion, uh, Babs' greatest strengths and weaknesses? Um, I think her greatest weakness, uh, which it seems like she's gotten over, at least in Batgirl, we'll see how it turns out in uh, Birds of Prey, sort of her, she has a lack of... Um, self-esteem, I believe, and it's sort of all stemming from this chair, and I think that was one of the major problems that was plaguing the relationship between Dick and Babs, because, you know, she always used to say, you know, oh, you only pity me, you only feel bad for me, and that was obviously a big thing to get past. Um, it seems like she has more confidence now, but like I said, I mean, Batgirl is obviously focusing on Stephanie, and we can only see part of the side of Barbara, so I think Birds of Prey will see how Gail Simone handles it, and we'll see if Barbara truly is over that. As for her strengths, um, obviously her intelligence, um, it's pretty obvious that she is one of the, the smarter people in the DCU, um, I guess her resolve to get things done. Um, I don't think she will ever admit failure. She'll keep going until every last person <laughs> is dead, potentially, if there was a mission. So I think those are definitely um, her strengths. So I think that pretty much sums up um, Barbara as a whole, I think. Um, I think another strength, just in terms of the character, is that she's real. Um, which is one of the things, one of the reasons why I really love her is that she's real to me. So, there's my answer. Next, we have Rogue Forever 7. What is your favorite and least favorite issue that spotlights Babs, and why? I have to say my least favorite, of course, is um, Batgirl's costume cut-ups. Um, you know, Detective Comics 371. Um, just because... It was so contrived, almost, I guess. Um, 
I, I don't even know what the point of it was, to be honest. Uh, to prove that she was a girl, but in the end, she had it all handled, and she used her girly nature to get the best of the crooks. Um, it was just, it was a terrible, it was a terrible issue, let's be honest. Um, I guess it sums up the Silver Age. Um, I'm glad to see that past that, you know, we've really risen, um the character of Babs has sort of risen to the occasion, uh, and she's certainly, I think, garnered a lot of respect, you can tell from the writers in all the stories that she's getting now, so I think that was sort of the, the trough, the slump of everything, and now she's, she's picking back up again. Um, as for my favorite issue, it's really hard to say, um, I definitely like all of the, uh, I mean, this is, I guess, a cliche now, but all of the Batgirl year ones, I think, you know, especially number two, I think, was a really good one, or number one, and, uh, you know, for reasons that she just reminds me of myself, um, you know, she's shorter, so she doesn't meet the height standard, I mean, she's not as short as I am, um, but, you know, she doesn't meet the height standard, she's certainly underestimated until you see what she can do, and she feels like she has to prove herself to everyone, so definitely the, the beginning issues of that series, I think, when you really get inside her head and you really see what she's up against, those are definitely my favorites. Next up, Noctis, one of my good friends on the Batgirl to Oracle message board. So I just got out of my sociology class where we had an intriguing discussion on human personal relationships. So that's the inspiration for the following questions. Number one, out of all the Robins in Batman history, excluding Stephanie, who would you most likely be close friends with? Oh man, no Stephanie? Um, I think it'd probably be Tim. Tim and I would get along rather well. Um, however, when Dick was Robin, his sense of humor and his sarcasm probably would have complemented my own. So that would be uh, another good choice. So I'd have to say uh, probably Tim or Dick um, if I had to choose. Number two, using your keen viewpoint, evaluate the dating appeal for each of the Robins. Okay, well, let's, I guess, try to go in order. As for Dick, um, he's got sarcasm, he's witty, and uh, yeah, he's cute in his little, his pixie boots. Jason is more sardonic, um, so there's more of a, uh, a, a bite to his sarcasm. Um, definitely has a rougher attitude. Um, I mean, for girls out there, this would be the bad boy uh, to get your blood uh, going. Tim, he has a heart of gold. He's passionate and definitely dedicated. Damien, um, to be honest, I have no idea. Um, and then I guess if we should include Steph, uh, she's definitely snarky at times, pretty bubbly, and she always has a positive attitude. So I think she'd be a good catch uh, for any guy. Number three. Out of all of the Robins, who would you like to date the most? Oh, great. Why? To be fair, this includes Stephanie as well. Also, for the sake of ages, let's make everyone be 18 years old, including you. I think when it comes down to it, I would probably date Tim. Um, he certainly has grown up a lot and definitely has a lot to be proud of. Uh, I think his caring nature certainly makes him a great choice for a boyfriend, and his dedication to his friends and, you know, the cause really means that he would probably be <laughs> pretty dedicated to me. Uh, but really, good luck dating any Robin, since 
their hours are pretty much sort of the the death, the knife to any relationship, I would say. But I guess we'll see how he sort of has a uh, a budding relationship with Lucius Fox's um, daughter. So we'll see how that holds up. So thank you for all of your questions, Noctis. Next up we have Walka. Um, hopefully I'm pronouncing that name. It's kind of like a, a Brooklyn, uh, Walker, Texas Ranger, but it's Walka, you know. Anyway, um, and he's on the Bad Girl to Oracle message board as well. He asked several questions as well. Let's see. Number one, who is Bab's nemesis, i.e. her Joker, Lex, Green Goblin? Um, certainly someone could say Joker because he is always going to stay stay with her, um, like some of the greatest. I don't think she'll ever get over, totally over, um, what happened. And, uh, well, yeah, I hate him for her, too. So, the nemesis, what I always see as a nemesis, an arch nemesis, is sort of your equal. Um, which is why I actually debate, um, or I would debate that Spider-Man's real arch nemesis is, uh, Venom. Because I think that he, I think... I, I can see why Green Goblin always comes up because he's sort of his intellectual equal, but I think that Venom is really the the doppelganger to him, the dark Spider-Man, so that's why I always pick him, but this is not the Spider-Man show. So, um, Bad's nemesis, I would say Calculator, because he really is, he is the dark oracle. Uh, f- you know, he's the oracle for the villains. Um, so I'm really glad you asked this, actually. It came at a very good time since this... We'll get into Calculator later this um, show. Number two. Do you think it will ever work out between Dick Grayson and her? Why, why not? Ugh, you know, probably not as much as I really want it to. I think, you know, a lot of people have said, you know, DC's never going to pull the trigger on this. I think that they'll date a lot, but in the end, I don't know if they'll ever... I don't know if they'll ever settle down and be together forever. Um, especially if Kingdom Come is canon, which as far as I know it is. And that, of course, unfortunately, shows Dick Grayson as Red Robin, and apparently he um, married Starfire, so let's not speak of that. But I know that Gail Simone has sort of teased that um, some nighttime activities uh, will be highlighted in Birds of Prey, and so... I mean, I'm really excited about this, and I know uh, my good friend Kevin Cushing is also excited. Hopefully, I mean, it could completely be a throw-off, but, you know, maybe there will be some more teasing and, I guess, a potential for a relationship for them, however doomed it may be. But, I mean, we've already seen some stuff in Batman where, obviously, the feelings are still there. So, we shall see. Number three. I know you like Batgirl Year One, but other than that, what is your favorite Babs story? This includes the animated series and movies and 60s TV and comics. I also realize that you have not read everything Babs, but I thought I would ask. Probably my favorite story would be Birds of Prey number eight. Um, gosh, uh, probably one of the more expensive comics you will ever uh, try to find on eBay or anywhere. And uh, it's just a really touching story where um, Dick takes Babs to a circus and sort of helps her fly again, um, you know, helps her with the trapeze and stuff. And so it's it's a really big push, I think, towards those two. Um, and I think it's also a big push towards her getting over her paraplegism. I don't know if that's a word. But yeah, we'll go with that. Because I mean, at that time, she's still sort of um, self-conscious of um, her current state. So that's a big one. 
I also really liked, and I cannot remember the um, name of it, but in the animated series, there was a really, really, really good um, episode where Babs dies, and everything, and then, of course, Gordon finds out who Batgirl is, because she was Batgirl when she died, and... Um, everything sort of goes out of control and it sort of shows you what would happen. Um, I'm not going to ruin it if you haven't seen it, but it is, um, my gosh, when that happened, I was like, holy crap, what is going on? But it is perhaps one of the best, I think, written uh, cartoon single episodes that I have ever watched. So those are definitely two of those, um, two of my answers, I guess, for favorite stories. Number four. Why is Babs still fighting crime? I mean, what is her end goal? Or is she more like a cop and just does it until she can't? When will she stop? I think Babs has a lot to offer the crime-fighting world. Um, and I think that, like Stephanie, once you get a taste of it, you really can't stop. So, even though she put down her mantle um, right before she got shot, I think that she still knew that she had a lot to offer and she saw the potential of getting back, I think, at, you know, what happened to her at the criminal criminal enterprises and everything. Um, I think she's going to be going as long as the other heroes keep going. Um, when there's no hope, you know, when everyone's dead, then she'll stop. But at the same time, I don't think she's as, I don't want to say crazy, but seriously, as involved with that life as Batman is, because he will never give up, no matter what. And I think that she clearly knows when the stopping point is. When that is for her, I'm not sure. I feel like if if Black Canary ever died, ever died, the first thing Oracle would do um, would go really close to the ethical boundary of, of superheroes. Potentially killing that person? I, I don't know. But after, you know, she either crosses the line or not, but after she does what she has to do, I think that she would stop. And there'd be a huge void. She might come back, who knows. But I think that those two are really close, which is what I'm looking forward to, to see um, Gail Simone come back. And I think if she were to lose Black Canary, that that would probably be the tipping point. I think right now, you know, the state of things in the Batgirl universe, that if this very same thing were to happen to Stephanie, that I could see Barbara Gordon doing the same thing. Uh, Because I think that those two have really gotten a sisterly, like, sisterly-like type bond. There you go. Um, But we'll see. I mean, I hope she doesn't (laughs) stop anytime soon, but Kingdom Come... I See, I haven't read Kingdom Come, and I wonder if there's mention of her there. Um, That might be something that I should uh, look into. Superheroes are going to keep going. As long as there's something to fight for, they're going to keep going. Number five, how would you classify her and Bruce's relationship? I think definitely in the beginning, she was a little more than uh, the boy wonder, at least. Um, Not so much a sidekick, but, you know, an occasional um, aide. But now I really think that they're colleagues. Um, I think that you can definitely tell that he respects her, and um, they'll fight side by side rather than him taking the lead on anything. Number six. Why did Batman let her continue crime-fighting? Um, well, I'll take it from the Silver Age point of view, why, you know, he didn't stop her to begin with, or even if you go to Becker Year One, why did he sign her up? Why did he let her take the pledge? 
I think that he really recognized her potential, number one. Um, and I also think that it's probably that he thought it was probably better that she fight under him where he could keep track of her rather than her going off on her own and getting herself killed. So instead of going solo, he could train her and give her all the necessary skills. Number seven, other than placing her in Gotham lore to make Batman and Robin seem less gay, why was she added? I mean, what does she bring to the Gotham table that Batman, Robin, and Alfred were not already doing? Well, first of all, I think I would say Betty Kane, uh, Batgirl, sort of the first one, was more the one that was probably brought in to make Batman and Robin not seem gay. Um, I really think that Babs brings a new dimension to the Bat family and really furthers the role of females in the DCU. Yes, Wonder Woman pushed women into comics um, and pushed them to a great degree um, to get a lot of respectability, but I think she often stands alone. Um, Babs was able to infiltrate the world of Batman, arguably one of the oldest men's clubs in comics. So just to do that, just to perforate that and I guess get accepted is a huge, huge thing for her. P.S. What is her favorite color? I would say green. I actually see her wearing a lot of green shirts. And, um, well, Oracle is sort of the, the mask um, that you always see on screen. That's green, and everything techy is always green. So I think right now her favorite color is green. So thank you to Walka, and thank you to everyone who wrote in with questions. As always, you can email them to me, or you can... Um, post them on the message board. I finally put up a thread to ask me questions, and then you've got uh, Spider-Man Crawlspace off-comic topic to also look at questions. So now let's go over into news. As I said, Kimberly Rockmore is still still off on sabbatical. In an interview with Bruce Tim on April 27, 2010, Tim states that Wonder Woman's sales started out extremely slow, and then over time were eventually able to catch up to probably Justice League New Frontier, said Tim. The execs decided, because it wasn't able to sell quickly right away, whereas Justice League was, that there wouldn't be any more female superhero films right now. We were developing and hoping to get started on a Batgirl film based on year one, but because of Wonder Woman's slow sales start, that won't be happening now. Oh, you didn't know that there was a Batgirl Year One film being produced? Yeah, neither did I until the moment that I read this. As you can imagine, I was quite devastated. I have a strong belief that this movie especially would have a huge, or be a huge, turning point for female heroes in media, and I think that it would bring in several different generations of Batgirl fans. As such, I've started a petition to get the film back into production. I hope that all of you listeners sign it and show your support not only of Babs, but of Stephanie Brown, Cassandra Kane, and all the other wonderful DC heroines out there. Without this movie, great leads like Zatanna, Black Canary, Donna Troy, or others will never get the chance. This petition, along with a written letter, will be sent to President Ronald J. Saunders, SVP of Sales Mike Takak, um, and SVP of Acquisitions and Business Development Eva Davis. Thank you for informing me that Warner Brothers Animation had nothing to do with the decision, but it was actually Warner Home Video. I still would like to get signatures from Bruce Tim, Lauren Montgomery, and Sam Register if possible. You can get to the petition by going to www.gopetition.com slash petition slash batgirl dash year dash one dot html. There are also countless links around either on my blog, 
my BTO fan page, Spider-Man Crawl Space, or even the BTO message board. I hope that you'll add your name to the list and that we all push Warner Home Video to change their decision. Now, the previous episode, I, re- uh, I revealed that there is a contest to create a new intro for Bad Girl to Oracle, the Barbara Gordon podcast. I originally was going to announce it this episode, but, you know, all the hard drive crap happened and forced me to show my hand earlier. As I said before, I give complete artistic freedom. Yes, I did want some samples from different media incarnations, but as one entry slash suggestion uh, was just a music-only theme from Batman the Animated Series, I think that it could be anything, frankly. I just want it to be awesome and emulate the power of Babs and the subsequent Batgirls. Please submit your entries in an MP3 format. You can send them to batgirltooracle at gmail.com. The winner will be announced in episode 8 in June, and they will receive a copy of Sex, Money, Good Grades, and Other Things You Won't Get in College by Brad Mendenhall. I'm excited to hear the entries, and I'm hoping, hoping to get three entries at least. That's that's my hope. Hopefully, I, I, I'm dreaming big, but um, we'll see, I suppose. So now let's move on to the reviews. We've got um, I, sort of a big lineup, so it's probably best to uh, get started right away. First up, we have Adventures Comics, number 381, The Supergirl Gang. came out in June 1969. The writer, Carrie Bates. The artist, Jay Winslow Mortimer. According to this cover, um, this is Supergirl's first solo story. Such a big leap for a female hero. Patrolling Metropolis while Superman is away on a Justice League mission, Supergirl stumbles upon a group of female cat burglars robbing a penthouse. In stopping the thieves, she learns that one of them is Judy Benson, one of Linda Danvers, a.k.a. Supergirl's, college classmates. Linda picks up Judy from the Metropolis police station and finds out that Judy has joined up with an all-girls sleuth school and has a hard time recalling the events that led to her arrest. Finding everything all too suspicious, Supergirl decides to investigate the Sooth School, but finds that her X-ray vision is useless because the walls are lined with lead. This story continues in Part 2, Classes in Crime. After witnessing a Sooth School demonstration at Stan Hope College, Supergirl checks the Batcave's crime computer to see that Albert Maxim, the head of the Sooth School, has a criminal record. She then decides to infiltrate the school in her civilian guise and signs up for membership with two other female classmates. Linda discovers that it's not Albert Maxim, but Jonathan Maxim, Albert's twin brother, that is the head of the school. While feigning awkwardness in order to keep her identity secret, Linda takes notice of a blonde classmate, Miss Barber, who is at the top of the class. Linda remains suspicious, but finds reasons to doubt her suspicions. On a night when the beginner classes are canceled due to an advanced class field assignment, Linda decides to follow the group as Supergirl. The Catburgor group are about to be stopped by police, something which Supergirl herself is planning on preventing so that she may find out what is really going on with Maxim and the school. But Barber, that gifted student, takes the police out and the girls get away. The story is then concluded in Part 3, The Girl of Steel Steals. Linda shows that she can rise to the top of the class in order to get on the advanced team. In a showdown between Linda and Barber, a girl who also wants to unmask Maxim's plans, Linda comes out on top to become the leader of the advanced team. Linda discovers that Maxim has been using a special costume made of mirrors to hypnotize the girls in his sleuth school in order to get them to rob for him. 
Linda pretends to be brainwashed and follows through on the robbery, alerting Superman to trust her. Supergirl, the girls of the advanced class, whom Supergirl unhypnotizes, and a Linda Danvers robot all capture Maxim. Maxim then uses his last card in the form of his own robots with the kryptonite inside of their heads. While Supergirl is weakened, Batgirl arrives and helps out, revealing that she was Miss Barber and working to stop Maxim all along. Even though she was brainwashed, she used a tape recorder to record him describing his robbery plans to the girls. Well, I guess I accidentally picked up Supergirl Showcase because this issue was all about Supergirl. Now, that's not to say that I didn't like this issue. In fact, I actually thought that it was rather good. It's just that I always look forward to Babs' heavy issues to really see development. And when I know that she appears in a comic other than Detective for Batman, I'm really interested to see the dynamics between the superheroes present. It was surprising that Batgirl wasn't really in this issue. Um, you know, she has five panels at the end and uh, a page or so as Ms. Barber. It would have been a completely different issue if Batgirl and Supergirl had been working together all along, which I would have liked to have seen. Perhaps there is still some bad blood between them after Supergirl chucked Batgirl off of a cliff. I think the main problem I have with this issue is a problem that I usually encounter with any Superman or Supergirl comic. I think that writers take an extreme liberty thinking that these two can do anything. Yes, they have supervision. Could Supergirl really see all the way to Gotham City, to the Batcave, to the card catalog criminal index when she's in a round room and would have trouble figuring out which direction to look? Yes, they have x-ray vision. Um, does this come with the hypnotizing power, one which can unhypnotize as well? Yes, they have super strength, so it is possible that they can write in cured cement. However, Superman says that he is reading a microscopic message written by Supergirl's finger. Um, my finger's pretty small, but it is not microscopic. So other than these points, I did think that it was a good issue. We got to see Supergirl use her guise as Linda to further in her investigation, and we also saw her question her suspicions which really shows the criminal genius of Maxim and the fallibility of the heroine. One thing that did confuse me was concerning the twins, Jonathan and Albert. Are they actually one and the same? Did Jonathan, someone who previously had no criminal record, decide to be a criminal like his brother? I really have no idea. Um, I thought it was a strange plot point and one which was never really detailed. It was also strange how Lyndon knew what name to look him up as in the criminal catalog when there was no mention of it elsewhere. But overall, like I said, good issue. I give it 8 out of 10 bats. The next issue is Detective Comics number 388, Surprise, This'll Kill You. Came out in June 1969. The writer Frank Robbins, penciler Gil Kane, and inker Murphy Anderson. There's no cover present in my showcase, probably because the cover for this issue deals with the other story present in this issue, Public Luna Tick, number one, starring Batman, Robin, and... Who else? Joker. Answering a too-good-to-be-true ad in the paper, offering free room and board to somebody who fits her physical description. Awkward. Craigslist. Barbara Gordon soon finds herself selected to live with Batgirl? Batgirl is really an airline stewardess named Darlene Dawson who is looking for somebody to pretend to be her dressed as Batgirl in order to accept an award at the annual airline's costume ball so that Darlene can visit her grandfather on his 85th birthday. Darlene then leaves Babs with the Batgirl costume and explains that her escort will come at 9 p.m. that evening. 
When 9 p.m. finally rolls around, Batgirl is shocked to see that her escort is none other than Batman, or at least somebody dressed up like the Cape Crusader. This Batman tries to kill her with a gun, but the two end up in a struggle where Batman makes away with Batgirl's purse and believes that Batgirl is splattered on the pavement below after being thrown out of a window. Following Batman to the costume party, she finds a meeting with other crooks dressed up like Superman, Flash, and Green Lantern. The contents of her purse are really jewels, but on closer inspection, they are fake jewels. Batgirl attacks them, but the crooks gain the upper hand. Reaching her handbag in hopes of grabbing a weapon to use against them, Batgirl soon re- <laughs> realizes that this isn't her real weapons bag, but only a costume version of it, just as one of the crooks trains a gun on her. This story is then continued in the next issue, Detective Comics number 389, Batgirl's Bag of Tricks, came out in July of 1969, writer Frank Robbins, penciler Gil Kane, and inker Murphy Anderson. Once again, no cover in my showcase. The cover for this issue spotlights the other story, Batman's Evil Eye, starring Batman and Scarecrow. The best quote of the entire story, uh, bridging from 388 to 389, is coming from the Superman um, Superman imposter. Uh, he says, Sharp pussycat, that darling. She's following her nose. All I got to do is tail her tail. Continuing from last issue, Batgirl turns the tide of the fight only to be wrapped in a curtain. Using the arrival of the police as a distraction, she easily takes down Flash, GL, and Batman only to let Superman get away. Batgirl accepts the award of Air Hostess with the Mostess, while Superman looks on, intent on following her to the real loot. Batgirl travels to Cosby Corners on her Batbike in order to track down Dawson, hoping that she hasn't gotten her grandfather into this mess. While Superman tracks Batgirl, Batgirl arrives at Cosby Corners only to find out that old man Dawson is the brains behind the crimes. Batgirl fights the two and makes short work of them. At the same time, the Superman crook tries to interfere and is shot dead by Grandfather Dawson. Batgirl manages to incapacitate both of the crooks, while with the birthday cake, and turns them over to the police. It seems like all I'm reading these days are stories concerning costume mix-ups. It wasn't the best story that I've read, but it certainly was not the worst either. Uh, the writers certainly did their best to keep you interested and in guessing the entire way, first with the ad, then with the strangeness that was Batgirl opening the door to her apartment. I would hope that Babs could come up with a better alias than Barbara Gorman. It's kind of problematic uh, when your real name rhymes with your fake one. It was also really ironic that Babs was going up against all these crooks dressed as superheroes. Could this have been symbolic? Batgirl was able to take out all of her anger and aggression on the guys and beat them pretty badly. This certainly was a victory for superheroines everywhere. As the Silver Age always does, you know, there were some cute moments like Babs accepting the award and being sarcastically proud of it at the end of the story, the police of Cosby Corners being in awe of the visitors and criminals in a town where it is obvious not much happens, and the birthday cake being the thing that brought down Gramps. It's the little things that add to an issue. I also like the strategy of splitting the story over two different issues of Detective Comics. This is the second time that we have seen it. I think that it increases Batgirl's chance of getting people interested in the character, and it also shows that the writers writers are taking her more seriously. You know, she's in a big title, and now she has stories that are being told in more than one issue. I'd say that she really is developing, and she's getting more face time. Luckily, not as much as Wolverine or Deadpool. I give this uh, pair of issues, I guess, this entire story, 6.5 out of 10 bats. 
when we return, I will go through the modern back roll. See you. to me about um, picking these uh, transitioning tracks or even the intro um, music and now of course for right now anyways the the outro music is that I can pick upon a theme last episode um, obviously it was really depressing anyways because the death of my hard drive but you know all the issues were about death 
and <laughs> and sickness so I sort of um, use that so hopefully you can tell why I had the um, transition music that I did as we go into Bad Girl number nine Bad Girl Rising The Flood part one writer Brian Q. Miller Penciler, Lee Garbett, Inkers, Jonathan Glapion, and Richard Friend, and colorist, Guy Major. There were so many good quotes in this issue that I would just go with a really simple one that means so much. Team Batgirl all the way. Let me start off by saying that this is perhaps one of the best covers I've seen in a very long time. I love the colors used, the cool colored background and foreground, and the powerful pose of Stephanie on a gargoyle, a not uncommon motif for the Bat family. I hope to see more covers by Stanley Artgerm Lau. A runaway train has Batgirl holding on for dear life and taking down Johnny C, a guy with some issues against the city. Oracle keeps track while drinking a glass of Chardonnay. After a pat on the back by Commissioner Gordon, it begins raining on Stephanie's parade, a rain which, presumably, will accompany the remainder of this storyline. At Gotham U, Babs and Wendy talk while Wendy learns to fix things. Babs attempts to instill hope in Wendy when Stephanie shows up. Babs and Stephanie go to work on Firewall, Team Batgirl's new headquarters, located underneath Babs' apartment building. Meanwhile, Gordon gets Detective Nick Gage to work on a mysterious homicide. Nick and Batgirl cross paths once again when a security alarm is tripped at Elysium, the site of the mysterious murder and where Nick is presently. A zombified security guard leaps out of a window, with Batgirl struggling to prevent his death. A blood screening of the now-dead security guard reveals nanites, which start to make Babs uncomfortable. It is revealed that Elysium has been hoarding technology from Apocalypse, that pleasant staycation spot, just as the stolen briefcase filled with manifests is, to, is delivered to none other than the calculator. Well, I have to say that it was coming one way or another. It seems best that Calculator makes his way onto the scene sooner rather than later in order for Wendy to get any character development whatsoever. This is going to be a heavy case for many of the characters um, of this comic, and I'm glad that Miller is able to tie everyone together like this. This should be especially huge for Babs, since Calculator is the Oracle of the supervillains and has had it out for or our Oracle uh, for quite some time. The writing was spot on this month, with several cute back and forths between Steph and Babs. I liked the sea villain, uh, sea list villain at the beginning. Uh, like all heroes, I think Steph needs some minor villains that she can easily take down. She's definitely starting to build up her rogues gallery. I also like that Batgirl got recognition from Gordon. It was bittersweet and shows that this character is making headway. Wendy was, for once, not the same melodramatic character we've seen in the past eight issues. We finally get some character detail out of her, and I'm sure this storyline will either make or break her. The one thing that I didn't like is the attempt to stop the security guard from falling to his death. I had a flashback to Gwen Stacy and the Brooklyn Bridge for a moment there. In no way, even with a suit most likely built with strength enhancers, could Steph have caught that guy and steadied him. She should probably be on the pavement right now. I think that some people feel the need to kill off extremely minor characters so that we see the hero feeling really bad and that moment forever haunting them. It seemed like that could have been the purpose here, but Stephanie doesn't really have time to feel bad, and I doubt this death will ever be revisited. If someone has to die, I think it needs to be someone who will cause a ripple effect. Overall, it was a great issue, making me smile and setting up an intense storyline. I'm also glad that Lee Garbett is back. The art was as it should be. 
9 out of 10 bats. This story continues next in Batgirl number 10, Batgirl Rising, The Flood, Part 2. Writer, Brian Q. Miller. Pencilers, Lee Garbett and Trevor Scott. Inkers, Jonathan Glapion. Rodney Ramos and Pere Perez. And colorist, Guy Major. Couple quotes I pulled out. Babs was right. We do have inner monologue issues. And low profile went out the window when Jordana screamed at me like a fax machine that hit me with a faculty portrait. This issue begins with Calculator talking creepily to his deceased, rotting corpse of a son, Marvin, and initializing some foreboding technology. Meanwhile, Babs is shutting down Firewall, Team Batgirl's new head of operations, and Batgirl is struck in the rain. I'm sorry, is stuck in the rain dealing with the crud that won't get clean. Oracle tells Batgirl to keep it a low profile in case Calculator finds her so that Batgirl won't get dragged into it. Detective Gage goes to visit Babs at school but finds an interesting bit of common interest instead. Stephanie walks in on him and forgets slightly that he doesn't know her but Batgirl, but she makes up for that by being awkward. Wendy Harris finds her way down in the firewall and is placed in lockdown by Oracle. Calculator uses his Justifier helmet to control practically everyone in Gotham U who was looking at a technological device. Batgirl and Oracle then find themselves fighting a swarm of zombies. Babs is kidnapped and Batgirl has a real oh shit talking mushroom moment when she finds she is about to go up against Man-Bat, Catwoman, and Huntress. Oh, shiitake mushroom is right. This was a pretty stunning conclusion to a really great issue. Batgirl is really screwed right now with three intense characters from the DCU coming at her. I'm thoroughly creeped out by Calculator, mainly because he's talking to his son like a Norman Bates. I think that this just highlights his evil maniacal ways. Batgirl and Oracle are really in sync this issue, completing each other's sentences, saying the same thing, crap, and even being each other's confidants. This was also the first time in this series that we see Batgirl and Oracle fighting side by side, which was great. Oh, and I guess I was wrong about the security guard. He was mentioned again. I still don't think it's all that powerful, though. I mean, what do you guys think? Do you think that this was a good use of a, a very minor, like, F-list character, um, would you have liked to have seen Miller wait a little bit and, and have a, an actual minor character die and see that um, effect on Stephanie? Let me know. The entire scene between Nick and Stephanie was so ridiculous and awkward that it was wonderful. I especially love the fact that she says what she's thinking accidentally. Once again, however, I am concerned that she's going to get a crush on him, which is not going to be the right move for the character. <sighs> and of course, I cannot seem to get away from people vomiting. First Vulture and ASM, now this. Is vomit really necessary? Another problem I have is with Wendy being down at Firewall. It seems like it's foreshadowing, and if Wendy becomes a new Batgirl handler so that Babs can be a bird full-time, I think I will be unhappy. This was another great issue, and I really cannot wait for the next part. 9 out of 10 bats. Now, to help me review this final issue, I have enlisted the help of a very good friend of mine. You can actually watch a biographical portrayal of his life every Tuesday night at 10 p.m. on FX. It's called Justified. Now, Kevin, what is it like to be a U.S. Marshal in Kentucky and going after neo-Nazis? 
Well, the main thing is you have to have a big cowboy hat because if if you don't have the stature in your hat, then the neo Nazis just uh, they aren't afraid of you. They can't get, they can't take you seriously. So it, you need to make sure your brim is really wide. And, and it's really tall, so you cast an imposing shadow. Because when those neo-Nazis see the shadow of the big, tall cowboy hat, it's like criminals seeing Spider-Man's light on the ground or something. They just scatter. And the cowboy boots are good, too, because they give you a nice little clank, and neo-Nazis are notoriously afraid of clanging metal sounds. So that's, uh, that, that's what's really important. It's all about wardrobe and accessorizing, just like any other job. Wow, okay. Um, do you actually watch that show? No, never seen an episode in my life. <laughs> wow, okay. I, I've actually started watching. I think I watched the first two episodes, and uh, I just, it's for some reason reminds me of you, and I just think, oh, I'm learning so much about Kevin right now and his culture over there in Kentucky. So. <laughs> from what I hear, he hasn't made it to Louisville yet, so I'm going to hope they keep it away from my city. <laughs> yeah, it's mostly happening around uh, Lexington, so. Yeah, those guys are hicks. <laughs> I can tell, yeah. Um, but yeah, what we're going to go over is uh, Brave in the Bowl number 33, Ladies' Night. Um, the writer was or is J. Michael Straczynski, your boy. Uh, mm. Artist Cliff Chang, colorist Trish Mulvihill, and uh, cover by Jesus Saez. Um, the, probably the funniest quote I think that I found throughout was, Dude, she reached into my pocket and totally crushed my iPhone. <laughs> um, the summary, uh, I was talking to Kevin about this earlier. Basically, you could either, either have one sentence summary or like a huge summary. So I went with the one sentence. And the summary is, Zantana has a dream. It's more like a premonition, which prompts her to call on Wonder Woman, Batgirl, and plan a night out on the town. Now, this certainly was not the story I was expecting when I ordered this book. Uh, I thought it was going to be all about three women having a serious showdown with a bunch of baddies. So I thought that this was a rather refreshing departure from the ordinary. What did you think about it? Uh, I was also very surprised. Um, I never expected to be seeing that panel again at the end, uh, and it was, you know, started tugging at the heartstrings the farther you went, and you got that pit in your stomach. Because um, the cover suggested to me, you know, we're probably going to have one of those setups where the ladies go out for a fun night and a bunch of villains show up and they beat the crap out of them and yay, girl power. Um, which would be fine, but I should have, you know, thought that I've been reading this series. And, well, that's never how one of these issues goes. <laughs> they always have that deeper emotional gut punch of a philosophical, uh, you know, moral problems, something like that. And this this one was definitely uh, definitely heavy on that. Yeah, um, I guess this is sort of the first one that I've read of the Brave and the Bold. And the, how long has JMS been writing this series? Has he been on since the beginning? No, it's uh, it's gone through a couple incarnations, actually. This is his, I'm wanting to say, fifth or sixth issue. I think he okay. started with number 28. But he's had some interesting team-ups. Um, he, he's mostly going for weird team-ups with some kind of a, a philosophical thing he can do with them. Um, but this this was uh, <laughs> this was probably the biggest headlining crew he's had with these three women, and it was the first team-up of three people. Yeah, it seems like it. And, you know, there was sort of some discussion on uh, Spider-Man Crawl Space that the story was too contrived. Um, uh, someone on there thought that 
you know, it seems unlikely that these three women would be BFFs, and, you know, it sort of came out of nowhere. Uh, what did, did you think that at all when you were reading this? Uh, no, not really. I mean, it's uh, one of those things you accept in a shared universe like this, especially with things like the Justice League around, where all these people have worked with the Justice League. You might not see them palling around on the page all the time, but you know they know each other, and you know they know each other fairly well. And, and also, at the beginning of the book, they pretty much define that this is not something they usually do. So I think he took care of that just fine. And I should correct myself. I just uh, checked online. He started with number 27, so this was his seventh issue. Okay. Yeah, I totally agree um, with you on that it's not too contrived. I can see these people going out. And I I don't think – I think it's a little too far to say that they're BFFs, but definitely – um, I, I think it's likely that they would hang out if they were to ever do this. I mean, especially Diana, who I think has connections all across, you know, the DCU, especially with the females, just because of her nature as an Amazon and sort of girl power. And Babs is just sort of so likable. And um, even, you know, Stephanie right now is sort of getting recognized by everyone. You know, she was recently talking to Supergirl. So I, I could see like that happening with Barbara, you know, just sort of reaching out and getting to know different people. So I thought that it was a good uh, team up with the three of them. And I thought it um, there was some good dynamics, obviously, especially between Zatanna and Wonder Woman, since they were sort of the two that knew what was going on, whereas Barbara was sort of out of the out of the loop at the time. Yeah, and I loved uh, you could tell that they both respected Barbara for what she did. Uh, and, you know, recognized her as a, a peer and an adult and everything, but there was also kind of an air of them taking care of her in this instance. Um, not because, you know, they saw her as youthful or anything, but because of they knew what was about to happen to her. Yeah. Uh, and I thought that was that was an interesting dynamic, and it was, it was kind of sweet, really. Yeah, I don't think you'd see this anywhere else, to be honest. Um, and I think it, like I said, it was a really nice departure. Um, I think that JMS really wrote it quite well. It really reminded me of some of those good, you know, Silver Age um, stories where there are a lot of cute moments going on. Uh, you know, when the, when the women first step out of the, the taxi and Zatanna and Wonder Woman are all really confident and Batgirl is sort of embarrassed and yeah. shy. Um, you've got the whole Jedi mind trick going on that Zatanna pulls on the club bouncer and then uh, Wonder Woman crushing that guy's iPhone because he basically insulted her by calling her a uh, corny old school ditz. So definitely I felt some silver age coming from this and um, yeah, it was really heartwarming um, especially, you know, seeing the relationship between Jim and Babs at the end which is something that you and I both really appreciated in Batgirl Year One. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, speaking of Batgirl Year One, uh, the art was something I noticed. Um, I actually, I really like Jesus Sayas on this series, and I really wanted him to have an unbroken run with J. Michael Straczynski because he's done such a fantastic job. Uh, but Cliff Chang did an excellent fill-in job here. Uh, and one thing I noticed was the way he drew Barbara, I thought was really good because it it really, to me, looked like kind of an older version of the same Barbara we saw in Batgirl Year One. Oh, I agree. And then there was one page near the end uh, that opposite a page of Barbara was an ad for Birds of Prey number one with you know Ed Beans or Ed Bennis, um 
his his Barbara Gordon. And you could actually see where a little bit older, the same character turns into that person. So I thought Cliff Chang did a really good job of bridging the versions of Barbara Gordon uh, in the art here. Yeah, I definitely also saw the resemblance between year one and this as well. I think the only problem I had with uh, Chang's art was... Um, if I didn't know the difference between Wonder Woman and Zatanna um, or recognize, you know, that they were wearing different clothes, I think uh, I would have been a little confused because he did draw them pretty similar. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that was the only problem that, you know, Zatanna and Wonder Woman looked pretty <laughs> pretty close together. But other than that, yeah, definitely the art was, I think, spot on. Uh, when they all got out of the limo, I was very glad to see that Diana had her um, bracelets on. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Very true. Yep. Um, I think also uh, what I liked about this issue was it was sort of a ring composition in a way. Um, you know, the end coming back to the beginning and connecting to the other scenes. Because um, he sort of JMS has that weird scene where it seems like Zatanna and Diana are making out in the bathroom, but then you know <laughs> you come back and you realize, oh, you know, she was crying. So. It was nice to go back and sort of tie everything together. Yeah, I, th- I think JMS probably wrote it that they should look like they're crying. Uh, I think it was just the way it was drawn that <laughs> suggested yeah. a, a possible Girls Gone Wild situation. Oh, gosh. Yeah. <laughs> Diana's really, she's a tall glass of water. <laughs> yeah, I guess, uh, you know, Amazonian and all that. Yeah, she's pretty tall. Um, so was the oracle speech you know that wonder woman gave do you think that was too heavy on the foreshadowing or do you think you know that was just the right amount at the beginning when she first said oracles i had the same knee-jerk reaction that i did you know the 20 times per issue they said oracle and batgirl year one (laughs) uh, which was just god damn um but as the speech went on um and of course you you were getting the idea by that point that they knew what was going to happen to her. So as the speech went on, I, I really appreciated it, and it seemed like a, a, a touching speech. And also, you could see why she was giving it. You know, it wasn't just out of nowhere, let's put the word oracle in there to foreshadow. There was a reason for that specific speech about that specific topic. So I think uh, that that was a very, very good job of foreshadowing uh, Bastrzynski. And I also think it's it's a completely different explanation for Oracle that we've ever seen. I think we always uh, see the Greek reference, but this was even further sort of into the religion and the information aspect that we've never really gone into before. So I thought that it was um, variation on a theme that JMS goes into something different rather than sort of this repetition of just the Oracle and they always see the future. And it also, I think, um, I don't know necessarily what explanations have been provided or were provided uh, when she first became Oracle for why she took that name. But I think this gives a really good reason for why she would have taken that name after hearing that speech. Right. Um, Oh, you go ahead. No, I was just, um, I was remembering in year one, they did have uh, young Barbara Gordon talking about oracles and stuff, I guess, trying to explain that. But do you know, did they, uh, did they give any explanation for that in the comics to begin with? Um, I'm not sure. I think I'll definitely have to uh, check in Suicide Squad when she first becomes Oracle, because that would probably be where she explains why. But I, I yes. don't know off, yeah, off the top of my head if, if they do give an explanation for it. 
course, um, there are some, I guess you would call them retcons in this issue. Um, the one thing that bugged me in the entire issue, the only thing, was the iPhone. Yeah. Because I know people, I know the sliding timeline and everything, and yeah. people like to update and just kind of nebulously make everything pretty much modern day, but that didn't need to be there. <laughs> and we know this is in the past, yeah. so he could have said anything, anything at all, even just phone, <laughs> but iPhone. Did it have to be iPhone? <laughs> um, that annoyed me, but I guess I, I was reading this thing thinking of some... Uh, posters on the Spider-Man Crawl Space message board, particularly uh, Mr. Bertoni, uh, who who has talked several times at length about how uh, Barbara hadn't even been Batgirl for, what, two years, maybe more, uh, before the killing joke. And then here we have her, obviously, having been very active, saying she, hadn't, she didn't remember the last night she didn't go on patrol as Batgirl uh, the night before she was shot. So technically you could call that a retcon, but as I understand it, she was just absent from the books, and before that she hadn't been Batgirl, so people assume she wasn't. But this, I think, could be some dancing between the raindrops here. I don't think there's any way to confirm that she didn't go back to being Batgirl during that time. So, I don't know. I don't know the continuity intimately at all. Um, I mostly know what Mr. Bertoni has said to us several times. Um... But just from what I've heard, it sounds like it might be able to fit, but when reading it, I could just see fanboys crying out blood murder across the nation. Uh, we'll see how that goes. Yeah, and I don't know if you can necessarily say that all of the, well, her getting shot happens the night after. Um, I think there could definitely be um, a large gap between their night out and then when Barbara's with Jim and then she gets shot. I got the impression it was supposed to be at least close um, mostly because the, the the big connection was Zatanna in the club telling Barbara she should invite her dad over one night maybe for dinner and then you know the next thing we see is she, you know he says thanks for inviting me over for dinner tonight right yeah and she said a friend lately uh, reminded me or something that yeah, yeah. so I, I got the impression it was the next night um, but either way I think it was very soon yeah, because what happens before Killing Joke is, um, you know, in the Batgirl special number one, uh, she gives up the cowl, like, directly before. So directly I, before. Yeah, so that's that's the only problem, I think. <laughs> well, that could still fit. She, we could have, I yeah. mean, obviously I haven't read this Batgirl special, but uh, you could have the ladies' night out directly followed by this Batgirl special directly then, followed yeah. by the Killing Joke. Yeah. I mean, I think there is some dancing, like you said, but I think that, um, I mean, it, it, it even says on the cover, you know, Lost Stories of Yesterday, Today, and Tomorrow. And I think with all comics, I mean, you can sort of like, let, let um, I don't know, let it be looser. It doesn't need to be really tight around everything. So, and I well, think that, that what? <laughs> didn't mean to cut you off. Um, I was just saying that was one of the points of The Brave and the Bold to begin with. Yeah. And what J. Michael Straczynski liked about it was that he could just kind of dance between continuity and not worry about continuity too much. It's just with this one, he kind of tied himself down to it by bringing in specifically the killing joke. Yeah. 
But I think that he adds something to the killing joke because, I mean, there's sort of only a few panels with Barbara in it, and he, I think he's really able to add depth to it just to such a short sequence. So Yeah, and he made it even sadder. Yeah, this is true. <laughs> yeah. Um, so the final question I have for you is, um, you know, was it a gift or a curse, really, that Zatanna gave to Babs, this, you know, this night out, this dancing, this, I guess, recurring dream that Babs has? I think it was a gift. Um, she has a. She says it was a. It's a great dream. You know, it's not. Uh, it's not a nightmare or anything. I don't. I don't get the sense that she, she's feeling so much. Uh, you know, pain from the fact that she can't dance now as having this wonderful fond memory uh, of that. You know, not necessarily last night, but one of the last nights, and ju- well, just in, in general, this great night. You know, it doesn't even matter when it happened. Uh, just the fact that they all had this night together and she got to do that. And I think she I think she looks back on it fondly and I think she appreciates it. Yeah, I certainly agree. And um, I think a lot of people out there would probably agree that, you know, when you sort of encounter this terrible thing, um, it always helps to look back on really great moments to sort of push you through and everything. So I think that this was one of those great moments, you know, remember when. And I mean, it- yeah. No, I was just, uh, it depends on your personality, too, because that can also see this going in the uh, supervillain origin story where it, you know, oh, that memory yeah. of dancing embitters her and she it's just true. You know, wants to dance again, so she goes and kills people. I think that's Wendy right now in, uh, in Bad Girl, but she's less bitter than she was. But overall, what would you uh, give the grade for this? Uh, I would give this a five out of five. Five out of five. And I, I would agree with you, and I'll even double it and say ten out of ten. Ten out of ten. <laughs> I'm sorry. It's been a while since I've been on this podcast. Oh, no, that's completely <laughs> fine. We're used to the uh, the gradient standards of uh, the crawl space, I think. So. Yeah, I was trying not to say A+. plus. Oh, true, yeah. <laughs> so do you have anything else that you would like to add to this issue? Uh, I'll just say that uh, for people like you um, that just tried the Brave and the Bold for the first time with this issue, uh, that this is actually par for the course, this kind of quality, this kind of great storytelling. Uh, In these seven issues he's done so far, he has done some of the uh, greatest single-issue stories I've ever read, and they've all been single-issue stories so far. You can jump in anywhere. So I'd encourage you to go back and get the back issues because they're some really fantastic stuff. Uh, If you don't want to do that, as I said, you can jump in anywhere. It's always different characters. It's always insular stories. So just keep on reading and get number 34. I think it's a really great series, and I think it would be really rewarding to keep buying it if you enjoyed this issue. So... I don't know what volume this is of The Brave and the Bold because it's been going for a long time, but um, was this entire volume The Lost Stories of Yesterday, Today, and Tomorrow, or was it that something that GMS started with issue 27? That tagline was added with issue 27. Okay. Uh, Mark Wade and George Perez launched this volume uh, and, and failed badly. Um, and I'm not just talking about the fact that I don't like it. I mean, the sales just were embarrassing. Um when they were on it, they weren't that concerned with continuity either, um, but they did – I know they started with like a 12-part arc that just kind of changed out team-ups uh, every issue or you know traded one character for another every issue, and there was just 
nothing tying it together, and yet it was a long arc. It was it was not good. <laughs> and uh, after that, I think it it turned into. No, nah, I don't want to say anything because I'm not sure, but I think uh, a couple of different artists went through there. I, I honestly think that it was a. Uh, what is that comics line? Is it Milestone that got drawn into JLA for a while? I don't yeah. know. But milestone. the Milestone, the milestone yeah, here was, yeah, I think it became a feature for the Milestone Heroes for a little while, too. So it kind of basically, the book didn't really have an identity until Straczynski came on board with number 27. So if you're going to start somewhere, I'd say start there. Okay. Sounds good. You know, to go back to the issue, because I flipped open to it, um, that two-page... Uh, picture of the Joker shooting. Does yeah. that trouble you? Like, for some reason, it's troubling to begin with because whenever I see this, you know, countless times I, I image search Barbara Gordon and that's, you know, I only get the killing joke panels for some reason. But even the word balloon that split up, it, it even adds to sort of the, the troubling nature of it. Does that hit you in the same way or is that just me? Yeah, that was basically a. Uh... Yeah, heart leaps up into your throat yeah. panel right there. Yeah. I knew it was coming, but I opened that. Damn. Uh, it hits you, that panel hits you the same way every time, no matter what comic reprint originally you're reading it in. And the way they split up the balloon there was, uh, was a really artistic way of yeah. showing how just shattered uh, her life was at that moment. Yeah, and I think also, um, you know, in The Killing Joke, it's all third-person perspective. You see Barbara and the Joker, but here you are Barbara. Yeah, it's completely first-person per, first perspective. You know, you just see her hands and everything. Yeah, and it's been a while since I've read The Killing Joke, but I don't remember it happening quite like that. Um, I think I do remember a panel showing the door opening and the Joker standing there in that first person like that, but then we saw with Barbara a little farther back getting shot. Yeah. So it, it changed it up a little bit, but it was, Definitely, uh, yeah. you know, a more disturbing way to do it. Which I think so, yeah. <laughs> Definitely uh, more powerful, I think, here, so... Man, yeah, I'm. I'm definitely not looking forward to reading the Killing Joke. That's like <laughs> not on my list of high priorities for sure. Well, yeah. thanks uh, for coming on, taking the you know time off from fighting the neo Nazis and everything. Yeah, I'm gonna have to get back to that. But uh, <laughs> I appreciate you having me, Alan. And uh, yes, always a pleasure. For- Thanks for letting me wear my cowboy boots while I was here, so I don't have to put them back on later. Oh, uh, no problem at all. So, to start wrapping up the show, I will first give my literary recommendation. Um, Obviously, as I said at the very beginning of the hour, I am going to recommend Sex, Money, Good Grades, and Other Things You Won't Get in College by Brad Mendenhall, the sponsor for this episode. For the most part, this book follows Kenny, a recent arrival to Crenshaw University. Kenny's life in high school was less than ideal, so he decides to be a completely different person in college, as so many of us do. Along the way, the reader will get to know Kenny, people Kenny frequently spends time with, and other characters that are connected to Kenny by degree associations. This book encompasses an entire scholastic year, and we see growth and change in many of the characters. To me, this book is really um, a combination of Catcher in the Rye and Catch-22. To be honest, a lot of the situations in this book made me uncomfortable, uh, mainly because I knew of similar things happening to people. 
uh, sort of cements, you know, the fact that college is the real world and uh, that people definitely need to be careful. A couple of examples um, that I've actually encountered. I knew one girl on my hall that just randomly, um, well, not randomly, I guess, but one night woke up naked um, in a in a guy's bed. I believe it was her ex-boyfriend, but uh, she doesn't believe that anything happened then. But, you know, that was sort of scary to begin with. And on the second floor of my dorm, um, a girl was showering, and then this guy sort of slipped under, um, or he was looking under the shower. You could sort of imagine um, uh, an auto mechanic uh, rolling under, sort of like that. And that was... A scary thing as well, since you have to type in a passcode to actually get into the bathroom. So that was, I mean, these kind of things happen. So definitely have to be careful. Kenny was truly the saving grace for this book, a character with a good attitude and depth. I was really frightened that he was going to do something regrettable at the end, but luckily he did not. I think Mendenhall did a good job to create a sort of ring composition, uh, tying the end to the beginning. So if you'd like to know the what the CD side of college is like and enjoy either Catcher in the Rye or Catcher 22, I definitely recommend picking this up. Of course, the winner of the contest to create a new intro will get a copy sent to them. But because this is an adult book, uh, the winner of the podcast intro contest must be 17 years or older to receive this book. Anyone younger than this um, will receive a different prize for his or her winning intro. As always, you can send any questions or comments to badgirl2oracle at gmail.com. Remember to send in your entries for the intro contest. MP3 format is best, uh, but I would accept a wave, but I think those are pretty huge. Uh, please also sign the petition to get Batgirl Year One back into production. Uh, try to pimp it out, send it to other people that maybe they have blogs or they can reach a wider audience. Uh, again, you can reach it at uh, www.gopetition.com slash petitions slash Batgirl dash year dash one dot html. I would also like to promote the podcast The Great White Way, a Broadway musical podcast hosted by a friend of BTO, Logan. As you can guess, Logan talks about different B-Way musicals each episode. He keeps it light, enjoyable, and definitely adds his personal knowledge of theater. It's a great show for any lover of Broadway. Finally, I encourage you all to check out the weekly installment, Friday Night Fights, by George Berryman over at Spider-Man Crawl Space. Each Friday, George covers a classic fight in spider history with commentary by Ben Grimm and Shang-Chi. This is something that is definitely different, fun, and interesting. Once again, thanks to Mile High Comics for sponsoring Batgirl to Oracle, the Barbara Gordon podcast. Until next time, fly on, Babs lovers. Dream.